0: This is an excellent rally for the Cannonball. Oh, wow. Welcome to the 2DOT Chronicles, your one solution to all things squash. I'm Bruce Huberman with co-host Miles McIntyre, here to reveal a game with stories worth listening to. I'd like to welcome everyone to the third episode of the 2Doc Chronicles podcast entitled The Missing Link, a look at the psychological aspects of squash. So uh, there's been a lot going on in, in the world of squash and uh, actually the season is just coming to an end, but there were some really big tournaments recently and I just want to acknowledge, you know some of the uh the winners and um we had the the world open which was held in cairo which was a spectacular venue and um ali farag took home his third world open title and noor Sherbini took home her sixth she's actually on the heels of nicole david which would make her the, the most acclaimed woman squash player in history so uh that's probably gonna happen sooner than later also, the El Guna Open, which was uh, a week after. I guess with the scheduling, things got a little close. But um, just want to acknowledge that Hanya El Hamami and Mustafa Sal were the champions. And that, you know, it was pretty tough, I think, to, to rise to the occasion, considering it was one week after the World Open. But so those were some pretty impressive victories. I'd like to also um acknowledge um Inyao and Siva Subramaniam who won the Malaysian Open um singles championships and uh, I think that was uh, Siva's second and it may have been Inyao's second as well so congratulations to them. I'd like to just also acknowledge you know all the the college seniors who graduated as well as the high school seniors who are going to continue on and uh, To the college uh, ranks. And a special, special shout out to the um, Cornell graduating seniors. These four guys have really been uh, stellar as uh, teammates and as well as players. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge Nikhil Ayer, uh, Charles Colhane, Thomas Mokaria, and Henry Robbins on the men's side. And on the women's side, I'd like to just acknowledge Mia. Krishna Murthy and Tori Huckrow. So, uh, again, great teammates, hardworking athletes, and I wish them only the best. Before we get started, um, just want to mention that Miles, uh, our co host, uh, is on assignment on a cruise uh, to Japan, and we wish him only the best and to be safe. And he'll be back early July but i like to bring on um, our executive producer James Pavelko. um he doesn't you know usually say much but you know he's the bones <laughs> of this, this this operation so uh, James uh, how, how are you and uh, i know you made a little uh, move uh, down south or further
1: south uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to orlando so uh, how's that working out for you so well, thanks, Bruce, for 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 welcoming on me on. Uh, um, yeah, no, the the move south has been pretty great. It moved, having everything happen at the same time, you know. We got the podcast, and we got. I just got hired at Disney doing uh, audio down there, so all kinds of cool stuff. But um, it's just been a, a lot of moving parts, but. Uh, been very excited to come back to our conversations, and you know, l- learn more about more about swa- squash. So, uh, it's been a great time. How have you been?
0: I've been I've been fine. I'm uh, feeling good and uh, working hard, and uh, you know, really excited. I think we have some really good stuff, you know, in season two, and I'm not going to uh, you know, right, had right, a couple of hints, but some really uh, well known and interesting uh, guests that are lined up and uh, but but this episode is something that i i feel really strongly about and i think it's like probably the un, like the unsung hero in
1: squash and um i think that's one of the greatest parts about the two dot chronicles is all the nuances that we are able to cover um the stuff you don't hear about any kind of headlines, you get to come to our podcast and hear some great conversations with some really cool people. And, uh, yeah, it's
0: just been, uh, I mean, look, I, I enjoy this so much and, um, I'm you know, really, it really gets me excited because I, you know, I feel like, you know, there are, there are other podcasts out there, some really good ones, you know, that are regarding squash and, uh shout out to um Squash Radio and the, the Rally podcast and um but there's you know a lot of information and i and i the way i look at it is things that i'm interested in and that could you know um could have helped me along you know our journey with my son and um and now i'm able to bring on people who can answer a lot of these questions that you know have been burning in my mind and i think uh, would be very helpful to uh, you know a lot of our audience. So, uh, James, again, you are the facilitator of this, and uh, <laughs> just just because you have an idea and you have something to talk about doesn't mean you you can get it broadcasted. It, it, you know,
1: there's a right, lot right. to it. So, uh, again, it's thanks, all, James, for everything you do. Of course, glad to be here and glad to be uh, on board. It's awesome. So, without any further
0: ado, let's uh, welcome in our guests. Dr. Green and uh, Todd Harity. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Mitchell Green, a clinical psychologist who specializes in uh, sports psychology um, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, Todd Harity a well-known uh, U.S. squash player who's now on the PSA tour and uh, has worked with Dr. Green. So I think the two of them have a lot to bring to the table today, and we're really, really excited to have them on. So welcome, gentlemen, and thanks for making the time. Appreciate it. So um, you. you know, we'll, we'll start with Dr. Green. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, a little bit of your upbringing? I was curious if maybe if you played a little, you know, some sports, you know, during uh, high school and maybe college and uh, how you got your practice started and uh, how you're, you know, really providing an an incredible uh, service to, uh, you know, the athletes in Philly as well as throughout the country. So thank you for coming on, Dr. Green. Sure.
2: Thanks, Bruce. Well, yeah, I've always been um, involved in sports. Um, I grew up in the New York area. And wound up down here in Philadelphia when I came to got my PhD at Temple years ago. Um, So I was always active in sports. But when I went to graduate school, um, it was really um, something going on in New York sports. Even though I was here in Philadelphia, that really got me turned turned on to sports psychology, which was there was a baseball player for the Yankees named Chuck Knobloch back then who was an MVP and, um, and uh, an all-star and all of a sudden couldn't throw the ball from second to first base without it hitting the dirt or going over somebody's head. You remember that Bruce, I could see. I do, I do remember and, um, that, that was incredible. It was incredible to watch. And I was in graduate school and I was trying to ask my professors what what the heck was going on. And he had obviously some sort of mental block and other other baseball players have had it as well. So um, after I practiced traditional, had a traditional clinical practice after I graduated from my PhD program, I always had knob block in the back of my head, and then an opportunity presented itself. I started to sort of slowly work with some athletes that happened to come into my office, um, and turned uh, everything into sports uh, about 15 years ago. But I continue to stay really active. If you, I know you asked about the athlete. I, I still consider myself an athlete. I just ran my eighth marathon. I've done an Ironman. Um, I work out every day. So to me, uh, even at my ripe age, I'm um, I still push it and I still challenge myself uh, to get after it. So,
0: um, so uh, what is your uh, PR for the marathon? There,
2: I ran a 3:46 is my uh, is my PR, and. Um, I know I can go faster, so uh, I have my sights set on uh, a few more in the next, you know, year or two, to hopefully uh, get a little faster. But you know what? I ran the the last one I ran was in New York this past November with my one of my daughters, who was a college athlete, a college runner. Now, and we weren't really well trained, but we ran it together. So even though it was the slowest of them all, it was absolutely the most special of them all because I got to do it with her. So I'm at that age, and my kids are at that age where we get to kind of do stuff together. So
0: that's that's great. I don't know. Okay. I I I ran actually a three eleven when I was forty six, and
2: uh, okay,
0: and you know that's, I you know ran Boston, and uh, but now I, I I barely can run around the block. But uh, you know, <laughs> I, I need to write my ship, and I also did a few Ironman too. So that was uh, oh okay.
2: Do you know what I'm talking
0: about? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, there's a lot of similarities in terms of you know, in terms of the thought process and the training and hitting the wall and things like that, that we can discuss as we go on. But, um, so you have a practice now in Philadelphia, um, and
2: yeah, uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, I own a practice called green site clinical and sports psychology. I have a few people who work with me for me and we're kind of a boutique practice. Um, we really only work really with, with athletes from the junior level, obviously, obviously up to the, through the pro level. Um, all over the country, you know, in some cases all over the world. I've worked with some, um, uh, Central American Olympic team, um, you know, leading up to the 2016 Olympics, all obviously virtually. And so, you know, it's, it's really, uh, I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. I love getting to get really behind the scenes with an athlete and, and do anything I can to support them and their goals.
0: I mean, I think you're, you know, your, um, position in terms of, uh, Helping athletes is incredibly important, and uh, we're going to go into some of that today. Um, and we also have today um, Todd Harity, and Todd and I don't think ever really met personally, but I've known of Todd. You know, my son's been playing, you know, he's 20 years old now up at Cornell, but he's been around squash for like the last 13 years, and I think Todd was, you know, finishing up, you know, Princeton at the time, and um and I just always, obviously, you know, you play squash, you know, Todd Harrity. So welcome, Todd. <laughs> and it's it's really nice to have you on. And uh, I, I actually was at the TOC the other night and I uh, watched Todd play an incredible match. I was so impressed. Thank and, you. I you know, have not seen him play in a while. So, Todd, you know, um, why don't you, you know, I know people know who you are, but maybe just give us a little update on your background, where you, you know, where you grew up. When you started playing squash, you're a little bit about Princeton and then uh,
3: what you're doing today. Uh, Yeah, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, So, yeah, I'm from Wayne, Pennsylvania, near where uh, where Mitch has his practice now. That's where I grew up. Um, Probably started playing squash. Actually, quite young, maybe when I was even four or five years old. I played different sports growing up, but probably when I was about 12, it became my main sport and my main focus. That's I remember that's when I won the U13 Nationals, so that was a long time ago, and it's basically been a big part of my life since then. And I went to Episcopal Academy for school and then uh, played at Princeton University, was class of 2013 and then upon graduating i basically went pro and since then i've been on the pro squash tour traveling and playing and that's been my full-time job i lived in philadelphia a little bit uh after graduating that was the time when i was working with mitch a lot um And then later on, I moved to Bristol in England for four years. I stayed there and that was my base, my training base. And then for the last, I'm in Philadelphia at the moment. um, I had that tournament in New York that you mentioned, but for the past year and a half, I've actually been living in Cairo, which has been really crazy and interesting and a very rich experience. Um,
0: I, you know, I, I dropped my son off there, like you know, when he was uh, in high school. He he went for, like three summers and chi- and I dropped. We went to Cairo, and uh, and oh then know, I got him situated, and then I left. But uh, that's a pretty bustling city. Uh, <laughs> it it really dark, is. Um, it, it really pales over you know, New York in terms of the busyness. It's not. It's crazy. It really does. Yeah. Uh, did he enjoy it yourself? Oh yeah. He loved it. You know, I okay. think the, the training was really hard when he was there, but, um, I think, you know, all in all, it was just a life experience that, you know, he'll never forget. And Absolutely. It, it, was, it was great for him, but, yeah, um, yeah. so, uh, now you're, uh, you're on the tour full time. So how did you, um, end up, you know, searching out, um, Dr. Green?
3: Uh, He came recommended to me. I, when I started going pro, I didn't have a sports psychologist and it was kind of the first time in my, in a long time that I was losing a lot and, (laughs) and I mean, it's another level. Everyone's fit. Everyone's putting their life into the game. Everyone has experience and it takes time to figure it out and to catch up and to get good and to reach that level and uh, initially it was hard I think I mean just losing and dealing with so much failure and everything um so I basically just sought help and uh I know Mitch was working with other athletes and stuff so he was known in the area and I yeah started um started going to him
2: I remember us talking back then because the the listeners might be interested, right? Todd, it was, you know, the structure of a a school being in college and having a team and everybody kind of eats at the same time and everyone practices at the same time and everyone, you know, does fitness at the same time. Yeah. Todd, like any new pro had to, you know, figure out, well, when am I, when am I working out? When am I chilling out? You know, who's coaching me? What's my, what's the structure? And, um, and uh you know i think for anybody who's new and gets to the level that Todd's gotten to they have to go through some of those those changes and have to sort of sort out what's going to work best for them and that's exactly what Todd was doing all right what's going to work best for me um, yeah, I, mean,
0: yeah. I think you know even the word do you bring up like failure i mean and i don't think it's failure i just think there's such a learning curve you know from junior yeah. to college and then to the, the pro ranks and you know so it's very rare that a, you know, a player comes out, especially in squash as an 18, 19 year old, and, you know, is going to have just immediate success on the pro tour. Um, you yeah. know, everyone's, everyone's body is different. Everyone, you know, it has a different mindset. So, you know, I think, you know, and, you know, the word failure, I mean, in my opinion and doctor, you can definitely, you know, answer. And, and but that I, I think is something that is probably, Shouldn't even be in the vocabulary. Um, you're doing something that yeah. uh, is very, very difficult. And, you know, there is uh, your body. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I was watching you the other night, and you can really just see. I mean, you know, you didn't win the match, but you had you were right mm-hmm. there, your body, your fit. I mean, and it's just a matter of little things that you need to need. you know, may all have altered. And we'll talk about that today in terms of, like, intermatch, you know, mental approach and uh, how that works but uh you know I, doctor you agree that failure should not be in, in the vocabulary
2: yeah i know exactly where you're coming from but i also understand that's how it feels to these these athletes like todd who um who i mean it's partly what makes them great is that they, they they it it's like a double-edged thing right on the one hand i don't want them to see it as a failure but on the other hand they take the losing so hard that it drives them to figure out ways to get better and and to win, but I understand, right? Absolutely, you're, I agree with you, and I know Todd does. Which is, you know, you start thinking too much, like you're fa- like you're a failure. Um, uh, it's going to be hard in this sport or any sport to to have the longevity that Todd's had.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and, and it has. I mean, yeah, it has to be innate within you and and the passion, because I mean, you you know, I, I was always interested in like the the the, the pie. And, and part of the pie, you have your fitness, your, you know, your talent, and and then the mental aspect of the game is, you know, to me, is huge. And that's what really separates, you know, all the top 30, 40 players can beat each other, you know, beat each other. And, um, but it, it's the guys who are at the top that I think just have like this mental edge that are able to just... You know, persevere at the right times and, and sort of uh, complete complete the task. And uh, I think you know. So I was wondering, what you guys, how you, what part of the puzzle do you think the mental aspect of the game is?
3: I think the longer I play, the more and more I realize how important the mental game is. I think, especially now, it's. Um, I mean, so much of what I work on is, is just the, the psychological aspect. Um, and it's all about confidence, uh, you know, approach mindset, how you can basically perform under pressure. And at this level, there's, you see players that are really good in practice, but are not as good in tournaments. I've had that problem before, um, and, uh, I mean, it all really just comes to, yeah, down to kind of focus concentration when the pressure is high, the confidence and belief in yourself, knowing what you want to do, the way you want to play and having the kind of courage or bravery to stick to that, even when the, the pressure is really dialed up and, and everything. So, um, yeah, I mean it's it's a big part of what I've been focusing on now, and and I think that is actually what separates the the really top players. I mean, as you said, I mean anyone in the top twenty, top thirty, everyone's amazing at squash and has good skills. People do beat it, beat each other, and the practice matches in Cairo stuff goes back and forth, but. I mean, what's most impressive to me are the guys at the top. They're, they're just consistently, they're always making the semis or the finals of the major tournaments. And they're, you know, nine times out of 10, they're beating the the other guys. And
0: I, I look at like, even in tennis, um, you know, the, the, the four, you know, more like the top three now, you know, with uh, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. But, um, you know... They guys, you watch them play and they just know how to close out the match, even if they're not at their best. And it's, it has to be their mental fortitude that, you know, keeps them at the top and the longevity. I mean, the incredible. I mean, you know, most people, you win a couple of Grand Slam events, I'm good. That's good for me. I made money. I'm good. <laughs> and you walk away. These guys just continue to continue. And, it's so. really incredible. And you look at some of the top guys, Farag, you know, the Ashurbugi I mean it's so hard to stay on top, at, you know, yet they are able to, you know they'll bounce back from one and two in the world or whatever. But it's so hard to keep that up. and and it has to be you know, your mindset, you know, to be able to, you know endure that. so uh, yeah,
2: yeah, I, i'm I'm most impressed too by how these people and Todd included how you keep the fire burning, as you said. I mean, I think that's sort of in you or or it's not in you. I mean, there are these guys, whether you're talking about the guys at the top of the tennis ladder or the guys in the squash world, like Todd, who are able to keep, you know, keep the fire burning because you know how hard it is to, to travel, to play, to tour, to stay fit, to eat right. And, um, you know, when I talk to players too, maybe younger than the guys who are playing pro there's a, we sort of teach them about the difference between being a great player and a great competitor, right? A lot of great players, a lot of great young kids who are athletic and talented and college players who can run for forever and, and, and have great technique, um, and great movement. Um, but as you're both saying, right, there's a difference between being a great player and being a great competitor. And the competitor is what I try to teach, which is and Todd knows better than anyone. How do you how do you manage the doubts, and how do you, how do you deal with the disappointment, and how do you bounce back? How do you refocus? Um, all that you're right is what keeps those guys who are on top on top. So part, a big part of it, at least.
0: Yeah. So I think a huge, um, you know, topic for us today is um, you know the junior player. Um, so like, when when do you want to start to inter- intervene? Does it make sense to intervene early on? with a player in terms from the psychological approach or do you need, is there a certain time that you think an intervention is, is, you know, going to be more beneficial or are there things that the parents could be doing or being aware of? I mean, I think the parents play a huge role both, you know, positively, and it could be a bit of a negative on the, um, on the player, the junior player and their development and, um, you know, obviously everyone wants, you know, their kid to be the next great, you know, Todd Harrity, you know, or Timmy Burnell or, you know, things like that. But um, it's such, it's so complex. So when do you think, you know, when would you try to help, start helping, you know, younger players and, you know, what, what type of stuff would you might be doing with them at, at an early
3: age? I actually never had a sports psychologist growing up in the juniors, although I <laughs> I probably could have done with one. Mm -hmm. I, looking back, I, I can't say I enjoyed my junior squash career that much, particularly. Um, Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's important, especially when kids are young to uh, just to be sure that they don't lose the passion of the game, that they're enjoying it. If it becomes too, stressful, too much pressure, too much of a, you know, going into a match, like it's a life or death situation. Um, I think that there are risks to that and you risk burnout and, and other things. So I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I mean, look, it's a very
0: long road. You know, you start out in U11 and, you know, not everyone makes it and a majority don't make it to U19 because of the burnout and because of the pressure and everyone's, you know, looking at the rankings. And, and then, you know, when you're a junior and senior in high school, it's all about getting, in, you know, getting into the college if that's what you want to play college squash. And there's an incredible amount of pressure and brought on not only, you know, internally by the player, but the parent, the coach. And it's very, very difficult. So, I mean, you know, that's the thing I really want, you know, our audience to really sort of grapple with and understand and try to improve as, you know, these kids develop and uh, understanding that it really doesn't make a hill of beans where you are at, you know, U11, you 13 you 15 or, you know, and then it starts, yeah. you know, it makes it, it becomes more important, but you need to hone your skills, you know, enjoy the game. And you're right. I mean, it's there's no life. It's it's so irrelevant because when at your age now, it didn't make a bill of beans what you did in U15, U19, even your college. I mean, it's nice to have the accolades and if you have kids one day, whatever you know, tell your kids, you know, I was a national champion and maybe they'd appreciate it. But, you know, something it really it doesn't matter. And um so, Doc, what do you what do you think of this? I mean, I just think this. Well,
2: is- I'm agreeing that, you know, if you. We don't want you to necessarily. I sometimes joke with parents that you don't want your kid to peak at 11 or 13, because uh, there's only one way to go from from there. And I do think uh, the parents do, generally speaking, they're loving, caring parents, but they do they get as much as you know caught up in the ranking game and the and the winning game sometimes more than their kids their kids do. A lot of times I see these kids that really do love to go play. They love to because their friends are the kids who are they're playing against either locally or the kids that they bump into now all the time at all of these tournaments. And I could see they really refer to them as their friends. And I believe it. Um, um, but a lot of kids aren't ready for the level of intensity and, and kind of winning attitude that that is sort of sometimes put upon them by by their friends by their parents, sometimes by coaches. Although coaches, I think, for the most part, have their heads screwed on straight. A lot of them were players themselves and um, know how hard it is to win and know how hard it is to win con- and to win consistently. But to answer your question about how, I mean, to me, of course, I'm biased. I think people who do what I do should be involved, not just when the shit hits the fan and there's trouble. I think we should be there Uh, regularly, maybe once a week for the younger set to come in and give a talk and talk about uh, the mental game and talk about is sort of Todd saying, are you choosing to play or do you feel like someone's choosing for you? Uh, The value of not just playing squash because more and more, of course, particularly in the squash community here in the main line of Philly, but I know it's across the country, there's more specialization earlier. So kids are opting out of other sports. They're not playing softball. They're not playing soccer because they're doing year-round squash and year-round tournaments. And that concerns me a whole lot um, from a socialization point of view, from a burnout point of view. Um, and there's plenty of ways to develop their fitness and their skills by playing other sports, not just, not just squash. So I have a lot of concerns about the, the, the world of squash. Of course, the sport is so unique in that, you know, everybody's sort of on top of you. It's so close. You're in that little box. Um, there's a lot, you know, it's all indoors. There's a lot about it that, that, um, that really pushes the intensity early. So I think the earlier coaches can reach out to get the players support the more earlier instead of looking at it as you have to talk to someone like myself only when there's a problem, seeing it as a healthy outlet to talk about the stress of the game, the stress of trying to win, the stress of losing. Um, if we could normalize that a little bit more, I think, um, the kids certainly would be much better off.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. Um, making it, you know, not a fearful thing of losing, and it's it's part of the process, and there's nobody, you know, even Michael Jordan had a tough, tough time, you know, making his high school junior, the Jordan Junior Varsity team when he was in high school, and now, you know, the greatest player ever to live. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, and, and I think, yeah, you don't want to make it taboo that um you know
2: and I still think that exists um, with coaches they still see it as a, um, like a last minute thing if something's really kind of going off the rails not as sort of part of the training even though people like Todd will tell you it's as important to the training as you know in the competition as anything else we're still not there yet
0: so yeah I mean there's just uh, and, and and a huge thing that I I see today also, and I was just interested in in your your guys' take on this in terms of social media. Um, I find that, you know, it's that, you know, the younger generation now growing up, you know, from their six, seven, eight years old are on social media. You know, you know, maybe to the chagrin of their parents, but they are. And I find that. um it's not only detrimental to, you know, bullying and, and, and kids developing, you know, you know, this, you know, phobia and things like that. So I'm wondering how that that really imparts on the on, this, on the on the athlete um, in terms of social media, being on Instagram, seeing, you know, kids who post, you know, their victories and that how that, you know, plays. And and what would you what do you suggest to kids? Um when you know you you discuss that because I know it has to be an issue when they come to your office or you're, you know, um on a Zoom call or whatever. And and you know, it's it's a part of the puzzle. And I think it's very different than when Todd, you know, he didn't have to worry if he if he lost a you know a match that his opponent, you know, when he was growing up, that his opponent's gonna post something and then he's on social media, he sees it, and now it makes him feel even worse, and a lot of other people are seeing it. So uh, how do you, uh, what, how do you approach that?
2: Well, where I often start isn't quite social media, but it's club locker. It's going on online to see who you're playing and not, and then just going beyond just who you're going to play in the first round. But of course, who they've played, who they've beaten, who they've lost to, you know, people will doom scroll player. Young players will doom scroll for hours and the, the fallout of it is, and they usually always agree with me, is that in, in cases where it looks like it's going to be a tough match, they, many have already decided this isn't going to go their way, you know, because they see that this person beat somebody that they've lost to. And so getting them off of club locker pre-tournament, not knowing who they're going to play, a lot like Serena Williams, who doesn't want to know who she, when she was playing more regularly, doesn't want to know who she was going to play because she's like, it gets in my head. It only messes with me. It doesn't really help until a few hours, maybe before she was going to play. And kids have had great success. And I sometimes have to get the parents on board with that too, because I don't want the parent then to say, hey, guess who you're playing this weekend? Um, I get it. It's in an effort. They think that that advance notice will help. Um, it, for some kids, it may, don't get me wrong. But for, for the ones who I wind up talking to, it winds up becoming a psych out situation there. Or even if they think the first round's easy. They've already decided what round they're going to be able to make it to because I've certainly they know, they know the next round is going to be a whole lot tougher against somebody who they've never beaten and then they're already in a bad headspace before the tournament starts. Uh, you're right about Instagram and that goes cuts across or, or social media cuts across every sport um, in terms of uh, uh, how it can affect a kid's mood, um, getting ready for a game, getting ready for a tournament, um, and it's a conversation that's on the table. And I will often, the benefit of me is that I'm not their parent. I'm not their coach. I'm not their friend. I'm an expert. And if I can sort of um, connect with them on, on helping them understand there's a, there is a path to reaching your goals. And this is kind of what it looks like. And then there's this other path that's you might get so, so far, but it may not lead you to reach your goals. You know, do you want to have that conversation with me, and, and include it in that path that's going to get them there, is how they manage their downtime, right? And is their downtime really downtime, or is their downtime really look more like upset time, spinning my wheels time, you know, having a fitful sleep, and so um, getting kids to delete it sometimes the week of a tournament, you know, sometimes when there's some negotiation that can happen a week before the tournament, then you obviously bring it back up afterwards. So kids will sometimes, if they really want to get where they're going, they'll work with you around the social media part and the club locker part.
0: So, uh, Todd, I mean, you make some great points there. It's just um, I know. and, And, you know, I think that a lot of times the parents are just as, you know, concerned about the opponent. And, you know, look, being a squash parent is not easy. Trust me, I've known I've been there. And um, that's one of the reasons, you know, I did this podcast or I'm doing the podcast is in order to, you know, to sort of illuminate and issues that maybe I did, you know, incorrectly along my son's career and try to just bring it out. Because was it's not always talked about. And, you know, people are sort of in the dark. And uh, but I think that, you know, the, par- the parents really it's. It's, it's this whole puzzle that the parents are a big part. And if they can just sh- sort of demonstrate to the kid, like, look, you're talented. You're going to be, if you enjoy it, you can have a great career. And, you know, you're going to just be lots of bumps and bruises along the way, but let's, let's do, let's try to do this the best way and learn from mistakes that other players have made in the past and um, sort of not try not to duplicate it. Um, so I was going to ask Todd. So, what I mean, you i don't really think you're a big presence. I, and I haven't seen much if any postings from you on social media. Well, you know, well, how do you feel about that in terms of at the pro level? Um, in terms of you know, there's some people who just post, and there's a lot of players that don't go near it. But maybe they look around at it, but they're not you know active and not you know touting their wins or losses or anything like that. What's your opinion,
3: Todd? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well, a lot of these things that you've mentioned also happen on the pro tour. I'm actually a mental health ambassador. They created this committee of a a bunch of us, um, and made us mental health ambassadors. Um, and this, the issue of social media has come up actually, where there's been some, you know, meetings at tournaments where people come and really, uh, encourage the players to post more on social media it's very important for sponsors it's very important for um yeah for your visibility and uh you need to be posting at least three to four times a week if not every day and but then a lot of at another uh point players you know were saying that it does bring up comparisons and someone else is posting their training and Oh geez, they're doing that. Should I be doing that too? And oh, this person's training like this, and so look what they can do. And I, I can't do that. And um and it just distracts you from your path and your way and makes you second guess and makes you distracted and, and everything. Um I mean, for me personally, I'm not the I'm maybe not the best. <laughs> example i mean i decided a while ago that i'm basically just going to do social media the way i want to do it and not post that much about my training and stuff um i i'm just a private person anyway and i've never been a social media person it's not natural for me and I've tried to do it. I've hired someone to do it for me for a period. I did, you know, different things, but um I don't know. I was taking this uh uh science of well-being class online once and the instructor said um, you know that we'd all actually be happier if we deleted our social media accounts and and anyway, that was her <laughs> that was her opinion, but that's what i found for me is that uh i don't know i was just happier and you know not not really being super active and not having it be a concern for me um so i don't know i think there's some i agree with everything that's been said so far i think there's a way to do it and a way not to do it um I mean, I think maybe having a limit and how much you're going to spend every day, how much time you're going to spend on it every day, or just being very clear about your purposes for using it. Like, yes, I'm going to make a post, thank who I need to thank, you know, get in touch with fans or whatever. And then, I don't know, but not catch yourself when you spend too much time looking at other people's profiles or, uh, comparing yourself to others and just taking everything with a grain of salt. Yes, that's just a picture. Yes, that's just a, like a short video It, um, you know, just st- stay on your own course. And that's really the way you're going to reach your potential is by having your path and sticking to it. Um, so I don't know that that's, that's my take. I've never been a big, uh, social media person. It's just been very, uh, un- unnatural for me, but
0: I, I think it's great that, you know, the PSA is actually looking at that and, you know, discussing it. So, I mean, I don't know if there are ever going to be guidelines set up or anything like that, but um, I, at least you guys are, you're looking at it and looking at the, you know, the advantages and disadvantages, you know, you know, I look, social media is great in terms of maybe in for squash in terms of trying to grow the sport. And I think that's, you know, it should be the main one, like the main, you know, goal of social media for, you know, the players and, um, I guess the sponsors and, you know, us squash and all the international associations to really just try to grow that this game, that is an, an incredible sport. And, um, so, yeah, I'm glad that, um, you guys, you know, are starting to look at that because it's very current and, um, And so I think it's uh, it's positive that, uh, you know, they're making steps to uh, address and seeing if it is, you know, um, prudent and um, important, you know, for the sport and the players. This episode of the Two Dot Chronicles podcast is sponsored by. Monique Mature of Surhant Real Estate, a firm based in New York City. New York State real estate is just as fast paced as Squash, knowing how to navigate under pressure to win. is all about understanding when to utilize your power, when to get creative, and when to switch your game plan. Monique Mature is a former Squash professional, a graduate of Trinity University, and the current number one on the SDA Pro Doubles Tour. He has now transitioned into real estate, drawing upon his 24 years of attention to detail, focus, and determination. New York City is an extremely competitive market, but with his diligent and creative approach, he will construct a competitive advantage for you. He can be reached at monic at surhant.com and 203 918 2813. That's 203 918 2813. So another little topic that I'm interested in is, um, and I think our audience is, and, you know, you went through it. It's a little different now, Todd, but um, Doc, I was interested in like the whole recruiting process and uh, how you, um, you know, handle the families and, you know, the player and what's your message. And um, you also, um, I read a post, or was a small article that you had written um, regarding, you know you know the next step and you know for these junior players once they get to college it's a whole different platform and you know you went through this whole process of applying and rejection and then you get in and now you're now you're on campus and now you got to perform and sometimes th- there's no there's nothing left in the tank you know so how do you approach that doc
2: well younger and younger kids are coming in and talking with me and saying you know that the reason they didn't do so well in a match or in a tournament was because they're afraid of how this is going to affect their recruit college recruitment. And they could be, you know, 13 years old, or 12 years old. So it's, it really does come up a lot. Um, the kids that I see are the, you know, the ones who tend to be the most competitive in the sport and they have big goals and they have big dreams. And so, um, there's lots of ways to talk about the recruiting process and part of the way to talk about it is the fact that they, of course, don't have any direct control of, of where they're going to get where they're going to go. I mean, you know, if they could, then they would, you know, go where every kid would go where they what school they want to go to. But we know that's not that's not how it works. So by the time they step on the court that following weekend, we need to make sure that we have a mental game plan that kind of knows where they should be focusing um, and what's sort of on the outside, and you know, in terms of the things that that they can't control, like whether this leads to recruitment or not, or whether, in fact, whether they win or not is not totally in their direct control. Of course, if it was, they'd never lose. So we start to put things like recruitment and whether they're going to win or lose into its own category. Um, and as Todd knows, I have a big whiteboard in my office, and I like to really make things visual instead of just chat. I like to diagram it. We like to like map it out, um, have them take notes. And so, um, that's one way we talk about recruitment. And the other thing coming back to parents is I really do try to get parents away from talking uh, prematurely about what school might be the school for them and what, uh, what college might be the one who's going to be there watching them play this weekend. Um, you know, there's a lot of over talking about the game around dinner tables. And I sometimes only half joking say I need to give you guys a list of things to talk about other than who's gonna be at the tournament and what it could mean for your recruitment, because it only it it only adds to for many of these kids, it only adds to the to the panic that they feel when they when they get there. Um, for some kids and Todd could speak to this for some getting into college is the, the biggest and playing on a college squash team is the biggest breath of fresh air they've ever had. Now they get to wear instead of playing these tournaments where they're, where they don't have like a team name on their back, right? Now they've got the team colors and they've got the team name that they get to wear and they don't feel so much like it's just them and them alone. And now they've got a group of guys or a group of women that they, and they really feel supported. Um, and yes, for others. Now they're on a team where everybody's really good um, and everybody wants to play number one or number two. And um, you wind up playing number four or five and you think there's something wrong with you, or you think, um, you know, or you become very unhappy and you're not sure this is it for you anymore. So I see it all.
0: I think Especially. it's also you play, you know, kids want to play eight and nine. I mean, it's so competitive now. And, um, you know, it, they, I think they just want to be a part of the team and yes, there's issues, you know, there's circumstances where the kid feels like he's worthy of, you know, but then there's a the whole challenge match thing, which, you know, we Todd mentioned before, you know, there's kids who are, you know, and in college players that are phenomenal in challenge matches and they can't get out of their way in, in a, in a, in a, team match or, you know, a national competition. And, uh, you know, there's so many little things. And so, and it's very subtle and uh, yet there, you know, you're at this next level now, and it's, you know, it's not gonna, it's, it's, it's nice, yes, because now you have some camaraderie, yet it's also difficult. You're used to, you know, most of these kids who get recruited to the you know the best colleges had these stellar, stellar junior careers. And now there's international recruits, and you know, your game may not be, you know, up to their you know, level. And it's it's hard to, you know say to myself, wow, or, or admit to myself that I'm have this is hard and, you know, it's not going to be easy and I'm going to have to earn wherever I play. I'm going to have to earn it because everyone's good. And uh, so Todd, I know it was a little different back, you know, in your day and, uh, you know, going to Princeton and everything, but maybe you just can talk a little bit about how you were, you know, you were mm-hmm. recruited. I'm sure there's some similar, similar issues, you know, at the time and how you t- ended up choosing Princeton over, other schools, which I'm sure you, you know, you were looking at. So how did it go for you?
3: Sure. Uh, Well, I did find the college recruiting process stressful and um, I was glad, kind of glad when it was over. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely sympathize with a lot of the issues that, uh, you know, kids are going through, I think, as they're approaching that time. I remember there was one stage where, I just felt every single conversation I had or everywhere I went, people were just asking me, well, where did I want to go to college? Where did I want to go to college? And there was just like, a, no, uh, no escaping it, <laughs> whether it was at the cafeteria at school or at the squash courts at the club, my parents, friends, everyone asking. And it was, um, <laughs> it was kind of a relief when someone didn't ask. Um,
0: I've, I've learned that. I've learned that, Todd, actually. Um, you know, you know, having two kids, one's in college and one graduated college. You know, we go out and see their friends or whatever. And then they were going through the process. I never so many other people were asking them that question. I'm like, I'm not going there. They'll you know, if they want to tell no. me something, they can. But I'm not going to, you know, try to
3: you know, get it out of them what, the, you know, what they're going through. and I, I'm the exact same way. I never ask a high school that question. I, I never even ask. And um, <laughs> and, and even if they tell me, I'd kind of try not to, you know, react or get to, you know, just uh, I try to downplay the whole thing because I know what it was like for me. Um, I found the adjustment to college was was difficult in in some ways i mean i i was arriving and um i think there were certain expectations of me before i arrived or when i arrived and um you know i was maybe going to be one of the top players or whatever and that was uh i I don't know great and in some ways tricky and you know dynamics and, and everything um but overall, I was I was lucky. I I did have a good time playing squash in college uh, at at Princeton. Bob Callahan was the coach at the time, and um, and he was good. And I'd say for my four years there, I was lucky to have a great group of guys. Um, still in touch with them now, and it was nice to have. It it is still an individual sport, but there was enough of a team aspect that, that I, for me to enjoy being part of a team. I mean, I remember at at the national championships when we won it my junior year against Trinity in the final and, you know, the matches were being played in three shifts and going into the last shift, the score was basically tied or going to be tied. And so there were three of us left in the locker room and, you know, talking amongst ourselves. Well, it's, it's coming down to us. And just that feeling of, well, I'm not just playing for me. I'm playing for my friends too. And I'm going to go out and fight for the, for for the team and for Bob and for, you know, uh, that, that I enjoyed. So you followed Yasser
0: Alibi, Alibi. He was, was he there yeah. when, you, when you were a
3: freshman, or were you- no? He was before my time, so he graduated uh, probably maybe two uh, two years before I arrived. Probably I know him, but I never overlapped in college. Yeah, yeah I mean, he he had a pretty you know
0: good college career to say the least, <laughs> and yet yet he yeah. you know just decided not to pursue. I'm not sure if there was injuries or just. Just this, not this. He didn't want a pro career, but uh, I mean, he was pretty much lights out back back in the day. I mean, pretty impressive.
3: He really and a was. nice guy and a
0: very nice guy actually. and a
3: nice guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why he didn't want to go pro. I don't know. I think back then, in that time, it wasn't quite as common. For uh, it was sort of towards the end of my time at Princeton when all the international players were arriving. I think it was my junior year that Ali Farag arrived and then by the time I was a senior, then there was a few others, too. Amr Khalifa from Egypt and Ramit Tandon from India, that were great players. So it was kind of as I was going out, then the influx of the international recruits. Um, yeah,
0: your timing was pretty good, I have to say. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you would have had some real. I mean, you had a lot of competitive matches, but they, I mean, those guys are you know pretty incredible players. You know, during yeah. their time in in college. Um, So, as we end, you know, get sort of towards the the end here, um, I think there's just, you know, a few more things that we we can discuss. I don't know, Doc, if there's anything that maybe we didn't hit on that you want to bring forth. Um, But, um, you know, this has been, I'm enlightening. Obviously, we can speak for hours on this subject, but um, I just think there's these topics that we've hit today are, I think, key, you know. As, uh, you know, squash, you know, matures and uh, we go forward and bringing a new, um, you know, group of, uh, you know, young players in, into the fold. Um,
2: There's just one thing I was going to mention because it's so it's so pervasive and it covers so much of the work that I do is um, I have this term called Mind Chatter, <clears throat> excuse me, M-I-N-D, Mind Chatter. And mind chatter is the doubts, the second guessing and the negative thinking that could sometimes overcome a player. Um, often not in practice, um, not a lot of mind chatter, generally speaking, in practice. But when the tournament rolls around, the mind gets very busy and gets very loud and very chatty because, of course, in a tournament, there's so much more at stake. There's so much more uncertainty and there's so much more at stake. So the conditions for mind chatter are uncertainty and there needs to be a lot at stake. And the mind will start to pump out these messages of what if, and oh my God, and "and um, I don't know if I can do it, and uh, they're better than me, and the comparisons. And the work that I do, a big piece of the work that I do with these athletes is getting them prepared for the chatter to come. Not like I can get rid of the chatter as I wish I was that good. Um, as Todd knows from his years of competing, it's it's always there. It's an ever-present companion when you're competing for some with something at stake. But a lot of for the lot for the younger people, although I do have pros who call me who've been in the who've been on the tour for a while and are struggling with their chatter. So for some of them, they need to revisit it. Um, for some, it's the first time they've had anyone really explain to them that it's not that they're cowardly, it's not that they're wimpy, it's not that they're not well trained or not prepared. It's just their mind. And they need to understand how the mind works under these stressful conditions. And then we go through a series of steps to how to manage that chatter so it doesn't manage them. So they can actually get back to the things that them and their coach are working on, get back to the areas of focus and improvement that the coach wants them to focus on. They need to get to the front of the court. They need to volley. They need to hit their rails tighter. A lot of these kids, under the presence of chatter, forget what the heck they're even supposed to be doing. They're just panicking. So that's
0: I I, I hear you, right? You, you, you're you deviated because of the chatter from the, the, the task at hand. And uh, I guess when you try to simplify it, try to eliminate the chatter and, and, and allow more, you know, clear volume in, in the mind, then you could be much more effective. Todd, so I was going to ask you one last question and I'll let you guys, I know, have very busy days. So, you know, we lost the other night. You know, I was there. I really wanted you to win.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I,
0: yet, I did too. So, and I'm sure you did it as well. So <laughs> what sort of techniques maybe that you have learned over the years in terms of, you know, an intermatch, you know, adjustment psychologically that, that you might make today that you were not doing years ago? And this is because it's something you've
3: learned over time dealing with the mind chatter and the nerves uh is something that i still struggle with actually i mean mitch knows i i used to be a mess back in the day and i still struggle with it um i think the biggest thing i realized with mitch's help and and then reflecting and come to realize myself is all the the nerves the anxiety the mind chatter all that is is going to happen. And I realize that I can't control that, really. Uh, I mean, I'm going to wake up on match day and I'm going to be nervous. And I, you know, going into the match and the match is approaching, it's time to warm up. And yeah, I'm I'm going to be nervous. And I wish I wasn't. I would love not to be. But I realize I'm going to be. And... <laughs> there's nothing really I can do about it. And just realizing that and accepting it and just kind of embracing it and going, yeah, it's the nerves. It's okay. You're welcome here. You're part of me. Um, And stop fighting them and resisting them so much is what made a difference. And when I started to make improvements, not perfect, but improvements on kind of playing the way in competition, the way I was playing in practice sometimes. Um, So that was one big thing, just that realizing it. Um, And I think you just improve with experience. I mean, every time you're in that situation, just kind of going, yeah, these are the moments. This is what it's all about. And, and this is another opportunity to, try to play well even with them. And um, I'm just going to share quickly because it's one conversation that I had with Mitch ages ago uh, that also helped me a lot is I remember when I was struggling a lot with nerves and pressure and deciding, did I want to play squash? Did I not want to play squash and just, you know, not, not enjoying my time on tour. And we had had a lot of sessions and a lot of, talks at that point. And I remember uh, when we kind of finally reached a stage, when you asked me, uh, you know, imagine it's the end of your career and you've had the most successful career that you could have hoped for. You got to world number one, you won the World Open and the British, I mean, all these lofty goals and you you did it all. Um, But you look back and you realize that you never enjoyed any of it. It was always, the time was always spent kind of worrying and, and angst. You never enjoyed the moment. You never were really present or, or there. Um, like, would it have been worth it, really? And I guess I finally realized that I had, at that point, I had won enough and had enough of those moments. And we had had enough conversations that I I realized all those, the winning feeling and, is sort of, it only lasts so long. And then what really matters after that is, I don't know, the, the personal stuff. Did you actually, you know, grow? Did you extend yourself? What have you really learned uh, that you're going to take with you? And um, so my answer to that question was finally, no, (laughs) it wouldn't be worth it. And I, I could finally believe it. Um, before I might've said no, but didn't really believe it. Oh, for all that stuff, I'd give anything, of course, wouldn't we all, but, um. Right. But I
0: mean, first of all, a career in squash is finite. Um, it's not, you know, and it's just, you know, a sort of a, a period in your life now. And you're right. I think you, you know, when you, when you look at it that way, rather than maybe the way you looked at it previously, um, I think is, is very, very helpful. And, um, I think, you know, you know, it's right that it's very, very, and all these juniors and, you know, so few, if any are going to have, you know, a major success on the pro tour and, you know, understanding that and just try to maximize your potential squash is, you know, a game for life yet a pro career is not for life. And, um, I think, you know, when you look at it, the way you're looking at it now, you know, through what, you know, Dr. Green had told told you back then. I think is is very very helpful, and it puts it in a, in a much better perspective, and it, it probably helps you, you know, today understanding that. And uh, I think your career right now. I mean, I watched you play. I mean, you know, I've watched a lot of squash, and uh, you're playing quite well. And uh, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's really great to see. I mean, your 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 body, your fitness, and you know, your, the strength of your legs and all the stuff that, you know, is a part of, you know, becoming a really good pro you have. And, uh, I only wish you, uh, you know, the best going forward and, you know, however long you decide to play. And, uh, but I think you're huge for the game and, uh, I think your perspective and where you're coming from is, is quite refreshing. And, um, so, I mean, we've never really spoken before and I'm just thrilled that, uh, I was able to meet you in, in this forum, and uh, I so appreciate your thoughts, your guidance, your wisdom, and your just your path. And uh, because it's very unique, and um, it, it's terrific. And I thought you did win three national college championships, right? is that individual
3: uh i won one individual and one team okay uh yeah
0: that's still like something that is really is actually really nice and uh yeah so um and in terms of dr green you know i think this is so important i think we just sort of hit you know just just the tip of the eye just the tip and uh there's so much more but i think you know it's being spoken to you know about and uh and that's why i wanted you know an issue like this or an episode that we can discuss this i think it's uh, you know it's been taboo in the past people never want to sort of admit that maybe there some psychological issues that you can't get the kid or the you know the college player to where they want to be and it was a it was a bit of taboo but um talking about it i think and just like you know, someone being in therapy or whatever is 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 half the battle and, and uh, getting things started. So um, both of you really were illuminating and so, you know, thoughtful and I, I really appreciate it.
3: And Todd, I don't know what's next. Are you going back to Egypt for the, the world? Yeah, I go back to Egypt on Friday, exactly, for the worlds and then El Guna. So, yeah, big, big you know events something? coming
0: up. Elguna it's gorgeous and you know just enjoy. I mean, right? It's an opportunity yeah. <laughs> to travel like that. I mean, it's incredible. So, um uh, be well, be safe both of you and thank you so Thanks. much. Okay. Thanks, all, Thanks so much, thank
3: you. Bruce. All right, bye-bye, care. Okay. okay. Yeah, bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the Two Dot Chronicles, hosted by Bruce Huberman and Miles McIntyre as themselves. The show is produced and engineered by me, James Spivelco. Theme song and incidental music created by Spivelco Music Services. Have a question, suggestion, or just want to say hello? Drop us a message at 908-977-6481 or send us an email at twodotmedia at gmail.com. That's T-W-O-D-O-T-M-E-D-I-A. It may be featured in a future episode. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to the Two Dot Chronicles. We upload a new episode every month. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts.